a lot to cover tonight. So we, we had a tremendous time, I think, at the luncheon on Saturday with uh, hearing some of the ways God has worked in the lives of different people in the congregation. It's always good to hear, uh, hear these things and to be encouraged by uh, what others are experiencing in terms of the faithfulness of God. And so we can be thankful for that. Uh, just a reminder that this Saturday morning we have our monthly men's prayer breakfast. So I uh, encourage you guys to contact some other of the men in the church to come out and enjoy that time and to talk, think about what you're going to talk about in terms of what you're reading in, this, in the scripture. We have our uh, end-of-the-year deacons meeting following uh, breakfast at 9 o'clock on Saturday. And then in terms of the rest of the year, there will not be Bible class on Christmas Day. On that Tuesday, that Tuesday night, no Bible class that night. Uh, but on Sunday before Christmas, we will have the Lord's Table special uh, Christmas Sunday uh, worship service, and then I think on New Year's Day we will still have Bible class on that uh, that Tuesday night, and there will not be be any changes in relationship to that. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can be cleansed of sin, forgiven, in right relationship with the Holy Spirit, enjoying our fellowship with him, and then we will be spiritually prepared to study his word as we continue our study in worship. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, as we reflect upon your majesty, we are overwhelmed with your grandeur and your greatness, your infinitude, your eternality, all that you are, far beyond anything that we can imagine. You are, your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and your ways are higher than our ways, that you have lowered yourself to be one of us through the incarnation, to be a human being, to provide salvation for us. You deal with us in grace and kindness and goodness you provide so much for us, and we are so undeserving and unworthy, and yet you have provided a redemption that is so profound, one that reverberates through all of creation because sin corrupted all of creation. Father, we worship you because of who you are as the creator God, but even more because you are our redeemer, and you have saved us and forgiven us, and you have given us real life, life eternal. Fathers, we study your word. We pray that we may be further impressed with worship as you've revealed it, 
the problems, the corruption of worship, and that we may come to reflect upon our own understanding and views of worship that we may be biblical in our approach. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, we've had kind of a bouncy schedule the last few weeks because of uh, uh, various issues. I was ill, missed a Tuesday night, and then we missed last Tuesday night because of pre-trib, and then we missed a Thursday night because of Thanksgiving. But so because of some of that, I am not where I wanted to be in our, this study. I was hoping to wrap before Christmas, but I think it may go at least another three or four lessons. But we're, we're getting close. Tonight I want to cover a lot, and I don't know if we will actually get it all covered. I want to look at a topic that actually in my outline was designed to come before the last two lessons. The last two lessons focused on praise and thanksgiving, what biblical praise and biblical thanksgiving was all about. But because our Thanksgiving holiday was coming up, as well as our Thanksgiving Christmas uh, meal, I wanted to cover that prior to those two time periods. And so I switched things around. Now we're going to back up a little bit to where we were prior to, to our, that study at, in Exodus as we begin, but we're going to move very rapidly. We're going to paint with a ro- very broad butt brush today and in the hopes that I can get us through, I doubt I will, but the hopes that I can get us through what happens in, to worship in the remainder of the Old Testament period. So we're looking at a wor- worship in terms of its corruption and also in terms of its reformation over the time period of the of the Old Testament. I've broken this down into basically five topics. We probably will not get to the fourth and fifth one. But the first is to look at the corruption of worship. Idolatry is primarily the the corruption of worship, whether it is the physical idolatry, the worship of images made of wood, stone, or metal that occurred in the Old Testament, or whether it is a more sophisticated, abstract idolatry where we worship ourselves, we worship feelings, we worship false ideas, we worship material things. Uh, In Colossians chapter 3, Paul says that greed is idolatry. And so we are very much susceptible to idolatry today, and we will look at that. Idolatry is substituting anything in the place of God that takes the place of what is due him in terms of honor and and glory. And so this reached its uh, peak under the evil king Manasseh in the Old Testament. And so we'll go through that. The second thing we'll look at is how there were periods of reformation and what were the characteristics of those periods of reformation and we'll look at this primarily under uh, uh, Jehoiada and Joash, Hezekiah, and Josiah, and then the divine discipline that came on corrupt worship, followed by the restoration and the return of Israel to the land under Ezra and Nehemiah, and the characteristics of worship initially, and then its corruption by formalism and legalism. We're not going to get to all of that, but that sets the stage for getting into the New Testament. 
And so that's basically the outline of what, what, we're, uh, what we're looking at uh, today. Uh, in terms of characteristics of, of worship, as we focus on this just in terms of a review, since Genesis 4, we've seen two things that have developed in parallel. One is the development of true worship, what I will call biblical worship. And by biblical worship, what I mean is a worship that is informed by the revelation of God and exhibits the characteristics that we're about to talk about that we have stated over and over again, and I just want to summarize them. And then on the other hand, from the very beginning, from Genesis chapter 4, what do we see? We see the corruption of worship where you have human beings redefining what God has said and changing it to fit that which makes them feel better about themselves, fits their ideas of what should be right and what should be wrong, and, uh, and it is essentially a worship of something other than God, and it's a redefinition of God. So what we have seen in terms of thinking about about worship is, first of all, that worship is defined by God. God, uh, Man is not the uh, source of, of the definition of worship. Uh, man is. I mean, excuse me, God is the, def- is the source of definition of worship, not man. Man comes up with his own ideas based on a host of different criteria. It may be what makes him feel good. It may be that which assuages his, assuages his guilt complex, that which, uh, where he thinks that he must be pleasing God because somehow it's made, uh, made his guilt less, uh, has to do with uh, producing something for, him, for himself. So um, worship is defined by God and not by man. Second characteristic is that worship is always God-centered. It's theocentric. It is not anthropocentric or idiocentric. It is not about us. It is always about God. It's not about what we've experienced. It's not about our problems. It's not about our difficulties. As we've seen as we go through the Psalms, the psalmist will start there but he doesn't go into detail. He doesn't dwell upon his personal problems. Instead, the focus quickly shifts to God and the attributes of God and what God has done and how God has, uh, has intervened. Uh, worship, therefore, is always God-centered. The words of the hymns are, are God-centered. Third thing is that worship is a response. It is a response to who God is and what God has done. It's a response to God's revelation of himself. That is first and foremost. God reveals himself, who he is. And we saw that when we started in our look at Isaiah chapter 6 as Isaiah is given this vision where he is before the throne of God in heaven. And so it is a response to God's revelation of himself, and that in some instances it has to do with a vision, but in most instances it has to do with God's revelation of himself through his word. And so as we learn who God is and what he has done through his word, then we respond to revelation. So revelation is, at, is the focal point of worship, which means for us the study of God's word. A fourth thing is that worship is 
is holy. And holy means that it is distinct. It is unique. It is set apart. It is different from what goes on in the cultures surrounding Israel, as we see in the Old Testament. It's not. And what happens is when they get to these points where they start to assimilate, where their worship begins to be influenced by the ideas and the values and the worldview of the nations around them, then it becomes corrupt and and it is destroyed. That what happens if we look at that visual of the temple or or the tabernacle is that what happens in the, in the tabernacle inside the courtyard is very different from whatever is going on outside of it. It is set apart. It's one of a kind. So we, we have seen that worship is characterized by sacrifice from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 4. Cain and Abel are bringing sacrifice. It's a substitutionary sacrifice. It was to be a blood sacrifice. There is a substitutionary death, and that is necessary for the cleansing of sin. Second thing we have seen is that there is a development of proclamation about who God is and what he has done. This is that phrase that we saw introduced at the end of Genesis chapter 4, that following Seth, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And that phrase, calling upon the name of the Lord, we saw when we got to Abraham, means to make proclamation about God, to make proclamation about who he is and what he has done. Another thing that we see that is developed during this period as related to the sacrifices is the the necessity of being cleansed from sin. And that happens in two ways. That happens first in terms of initial justification, when we uh, believe the promise of God. And the pattern for that in the Old Testament is Abraham in Genesis 15, 6. He had believed God, and God accounted it to him or imputed it to him as righteousness. It is man believes, but it's the object of belief that is important. It's the promise of God. And on that basis, God imputes righteousness. It's not because of inherent righteousness. But that only begins the process afterward there's the need for cleansing we saw that demonstrated or made evident in the uh, in the ritual involving the high priest that the high priest is initially washed from head to toe when he was installed in his office that's a picture of the cleansing of sin that happens uh, positionally at the time of salvation we are cleansed from head to toe Jesus uses that imagery and that vocabulary in John 13 when he's washing the disciples' feet. And Peter, if you remember, Peter says, no, 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 Lord, you don't need to wash my feet. And, and the Lord said, no, if I don't wash you, then, then you will have no share with me, no role with me in the kingdom. And so then then Peter usually goes from one extreme to the other and he says, "Well, well, give me a whole bath." And and the Lord says, "Well, you don't need a whole bath. Uh because all of you except one are clean." And and so that whole bath word in the in the Greek was a word that indicated a complete bathing, luo. And the other word for washing the feet or washing the hands or just washing a part of the body was a different Greek word, nipto. Those words are used to, in the Septuagint, to translate the terms that are used for the, um, 
uh, for the high priest when he, they were installed or ordained uh, at the beginning of the their ministry they were washed luo from head to toe but after that they just went into the tabernacle they washed their hands they washed their feet that was cleansing and all through the scripture you have this emphasis of the need to be cleansed before we come in into the uh, presence of god now another thing that's important that we've seen is that in the period from adam to moses there are small refinements that are made in worship but once we come to Exodus, we come to the calling, the redemption, the adoption of the nation Israel, worship becomes much, much expanded, and there's more ritual that is attached to it, more imagery that is attached to it. And we have to understand that in the Old Testament, what God is doing is he's using the whole nation of Israel as a corporate body to picture different aspects of salvation, justification, salvation, and of, of sanctification. And it doesn't necessarily mean that every person, every individual within the corporate body is a believer, but he's treating the nation as, as being redeemed when they're brought out of, of uh, Egypt. And the blood is applied to the house, to the doorposts of every house. And so every person is covered by the blood. That's an imagery that, that pictures their being set apart and covered by the death of the Passover lamb. They are brought out, and then we saw in uh, Exodus chapter 19 that they are brought to Mount Sinai. And there's, there's three different things that happen at Mount Sinai, if you remember. Initially, they are brought to the mountain. God says, uh, you're going to come into my presence. You're going to come to the base of the mountain. You can't come up on the mountain, but you have to prepare yourselves for three days. So that's cleansing. God comes down the mountain, there's thunder, there's lightning, there's earthquake, it's dark, it's ominous, it's scary, it's frightening, and everybody is, is uh, shaking in their boots over who God is, and God uh, reveals himself, he tells him what they are going to do, that he is uh, calling them, and he says, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. He's going to enter into this covenant, and so he's giving them the, the opportunity here to commit to that covenant. Because they're not yet in this covenant relationship, that, that we see these this ominous environment. And he says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a set-apart nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. And so what happens is their response in verse 8, this is a response of worship, and they say, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. So at this point, they're committed, they're entering into the covenant. And then what happens is in Exodus chapter 20, we see the giving of the law, and they hear it. They hear the law. God is speaking to them, and they don't like it. And by the end, uh, by the, about verse 13 of chapter uh, 20, in the giving of the Ten Commandments, they tell Moses, we don't want to hear the voice of God anymore. You go up and talk to him and then come back down here and tell us what, what, what they say. But they hear the basics of how they are to live as a redeemed people. And so in, verse, in chapters 21, 22, 23, Moses is getting instructions in the law from God, and then he comes back down. And in Exodus chapter 24, he's going to take the leaders up on the mountain, 
And this time it's a different scenario. It's not dark. It's not ominous. They're going to see the pavement, the sapphire-colored pavement at the bottom under the throne of God. And so they are going to once again, in Exodus 24, uh, 3, they are going to again commit to complete obedience to the Lord. Now, we're not going to have a show of hands, but we can be in any congregation and say, how many people have made this commitment? I'm going to be completely obedient to the Lord, and then the next day it's like, boom, you're just as nasty and awful and sinful as you were the day before. And that happens to every every Christian, and it happens to them. There's a period that goes by in, in Exodus from chapters uh, 25 to 33 where Moses is back up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, and what happens? The people get bored, they get restless, they want to have a party, they start making a collection of uh, all the gold and stuff that they brought back, brought out of Egypt, and they convince uh, Aaron to build a golden calf. And right away, what, what are they doing? They're slipping into idolatry, and this becomes a standard picture throughout the Old Testament. They're constantly being corrupted uh, by idolatry again and again and again. And this is, this is the warning. The first commandment that we find in Exodus chapter 20 is, you shall have no other gods before me. God is exclusive he wants exclusive and singular attention and uh, because idolatry, the worship of anything else, robs God of his glory. Now, what did I say that glory is? Glory, we think of glory as just as a brilliant light, but that, that's not capturing the main idea of glory. The main idea of glory is the significance of something. The word kavod has the idea of something that is weighty, something that is serious, something that is heavy. And so what we find with, with, with God is what we're showing is that God is, is so important that we can't live without him. That's how we glorify God, is demonstrating that he alone is the basis for our life. We, we, nothing else is as important to our life, to our very breath every day, as, as the Lord. And so in Deuteronomy 6.5, Moses expresses it this way, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That's how we glorify God, is we make him the center focus of everything in our life. That is individual worship, and then corporate worship becomes a, re, a, a basic uh, reflection of that. And Jesus talks about this in a little different way in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew six twenty one. he says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so in worship, what we come to understand as we grow and develop in our understanding of worship is that we have lots of things we like doing in life and we can enjoy. And, and really what's happened in, in the late 20th, latter part of the 20th century and into the 21st century is we are overwhelmed with distractions. We're overwhelmed with entertainment. We have so many options, so many things we can do on a daily basis that it challenges one of the biggest tests that we face in our spiritual life, and that is a test of priorities and a test of time management. Because when it's all said and done, it's not about the fun we have, the places we travel to, the enjoyment we had, and there's nothing wrong with all of those things because 
spiritual life gives us the capacity to enjoy God's creation, but when they crowd out the primary, which is our relationship with God, then what becomes most important to our life is our personal enjoyment and not our service to God. And so that becomes the major question is when I am making choices in life, the biggest issue is not, for many Christians, is not choosing between the bad and the good. It's between choosing the good and the better. And choosing the better is putting our focus on serving the Lord, that which is not going to distract me from my spiritual life and my devotion to the Lord. Because when something begins to supplant the importance and priority of God, then that's essentially uh, a form of idolatry. Something becomes more central, more important, more critical to our life and to our happiness than uh, walking with the Lord. So we have to understand as we look at these principles that worship then becomes a matter of our thinking. It's not a matter of external such as the the impact that music may have on our emotions. It's not on the externals of even ritual. It is about what we're thinking about, our focus, our attention, our priorities, its mental attitude, and worship is what takes place between our ears. It's like what I've said for years and years and years about spiritual warfare in light of all the garbage that's taught about it today. It's spiritual warfare takes place between your ears. Everything in the Christian life takes place between your ears. It's all about the volition of the Christian life, deciding whether or not uh, we are going to uh, spend our time serving the Lord, focusing on that which makes us a better servant of the Lord versus that which just gives us uh, a better time on, on the earth. So it is our focus on serving the Lord. The second commandment is in Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. Here the Lord says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Now, that's a pretty expansive concept. Any, any likeness of anything. So that, that wraps it all up. It's, it covers everything that can be in the air, on the ground, or in the, in the water. And you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, that's the word that's translated jealous should really be zealous, and it has to do with God's intense focus. Okay? It's an intense focus. And he wants an intense focus from us. He wants absolute devotion and, and obedience coming from us toward him and not a split allegiance. And so he is a, a jealous God, and he's zealous for our complete and total attention. And the result is that if there's failure in that area, then the, it will have consequences through generations. He will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. What that means is, is that the sin of one generation is not, the, the second generation is not held accountable for that sin, but they are, they reap the consequences of that sin. And so this goes uh, through 
uh, it is expressed through four generations, that if the parents are rebellious, then they shift allegiance. That shift of allegiance is then passed on to the next generation. And by the time you get to the third or fourth generation, they have no knowledge of God. And we've seen that since the World War II generation, so that the generation that is coming up now is growing up without being in church, without hearing just the basics of Bible stories. They're biblically illiterate, and as a result, uh, we're seeing in America what Britain saw at the end of the 19th and into the early 20th century is a generation that is growing up that doesn't know who Israel is, that doesn't know the significance and the importance of Israel. What happened in Britain is for 400, uh, for 300 years, from 1600 until 1900, you saw a strong evangelical community that understood that God would restore the Jewish people to their historic homeland, and they supported that, and they taught about it, and they were pro pro-Jewish or philo-Semitic. But when you got, made a worldview shift that occurred in England after the mid-19th century, shifting from a Bible-based culture to a Darwinist-based culture, the generation that came up after Balfour, that came up after David Lloyd George, that came up uh, behind these greats that were the product of early to mid-Victorian England where there was a strong emphasis on the gospel and they grew up hearing the Bible stories at their mother's knee. The generation that came after them didn't value the Jewish people, didn't understand their importance in God's plan, and so you saw a shift so that those who came into, um, came into foreign service following World War I had a pan-Arabic view. They were pro-Arab and they became more and more anti anti-Semitic, until you reach a generation today that is uh, embracing evil and is hostile to biblical Christianity as they uh, embrace uh, the, the people of Allah and, and Islam, and they c consider it a hate crime for those who espouse and enforce biblical, uh, biblical values. And so this is what happens. Worship gets corrupted. God is replaced by something else, and it leads to cultural collapse and cultural failure. God warned Israel about this. In Exodus 23, uh, 32 and 33, it says, When they came into the land, warned them what would happen. You shall make no covenant with them nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. A peer pressure, the pressure from other nations. And so the influence of those around them and their value systems, the worldview of the Canaanites, would influence and change the worldview of, of the Israelites. And this is what God warns them about, that when we allow the nations, I mean the idea of the pagans, those who do not live on the basis of God's revelation, when we allow their, their view of reality, and it's a view of reality that, that denies a creator God, it's a view of reality that denies the reality of sin, it's a view of, of, of reality that denies a God who intervenes and oversees history, and then it is a God that is, that is irrelevant. 
and the result is that it changes the culture and it changes the way worship is conducted and we're seeing that played out in American culture as well and so this was the warning God gave them that you shall not let the Canaanite dwell in the land lest they make you sin against me for if you serve their gods it will surely be a snare or a trap to them and so this is what played out in their history now we don't have time to go through this but if you were to look at uh, Psalm 106 there is a it's a confession psalm it confesses the sins of the nation through their history how time and time again they rejected God they rebelled against God they served served the idols now all of this happens because of the orientation of the sin nature our sin nature is oriented towards the self it is or oriented towards rebellion against God it's oriented to arrogance and in arrogance we want to worship our idea of God we want to do what we want to do this is exactly what played out after the conquest of the land under Joshua and you come into that horrible period of the judges which goes from about uh, 1400 about 13 75 or whatever until almost a thousand to about 1050 and you have this whole period that is that is just horrible and again and again you have this cycle where Israel turns against God they get into idolatry God brings a foreign power in to bring judgment upon the nation and then they're enslaved for 20 years because uh, when we're enslaved to our sin nature and enslaved to the false gods then then we're naturally going to become enslaved politically and that again is a trend of history and this is what happens uh, when we're enslaved to the sin nature and what happens in our arrogance is we want to worship our idea of God we want to worship that that impresses us it may not impress God but we think that because we're impressed with our feelings we're impressed with what we've said that somehow uh, that impresses God it makes us feel good about ourselves and so this is what was happening. And all of a sudden, they're more concerned about how well they're doing rather than trusting God. So they become concerned with, what, fertility, prosperity. We want to have uh, abundant crops. Now, God had promised them that if you obey the Lord, uh, if you obey the, the law and obey the Lord and do right, then God will bring rain in its proper season, the early rains, the latter rains, and there'll be uh, crops will be abundant, uh, your enemies will be defeated, the wild animals will be removed, all of those things will happen. But if you disobey me, then I'm going to shut down the, the, the heavens and it's not going to rain and your crops will dry up and you won't have prosperity and it, you, the, your enemies will be multiplied and your your uh, mother, your your wives will not be able to have children. They'll be bar have barren wombs. All of these things. God spelled all of that out in the in the curses of the law. And so, as they turned away from God, this is what God would bring upon them. In Psalm 106, it describes how they absorbed the fertility or the prosperity religions. And if you look at a huge segment of Christianity today within the charismatic uh, Pentecostal camp, they have bought into this whole false theology of prosperity theology. It's just a modern version of the ancient prosperity theology or fertility. It's not as gross. It's not as uh, infused with 
uh, sexual reenactments and things like that, but it is just as false and it produces a false worship. And the false worship in the ancient world was, I've got to secure my prosperity. And I do that by worshiping the gods of, of, of uh, rain and the gods of fertility and the gods of, uh, uh, that are going to, uh, the gods of thunder and storms and all of these other things. And so the indictment comes in Psalm 106, 36 to 38. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. Now, see, that's not what's apparent. You see the idols. And we travel. Those of you who've been with me to Turkey, you've been with me to Israel, you've been with me, and we've seen these Canaanite fertility gods and goddesses. But what the Bible says is what's behind that are demons. This is a Satan-inspired system. So the false worship, the corrupt worship, has ultimately behind it uh, the demons, the fallen angels, Satan, and and the ones who are worshiping the prosperity, the fertility gods, etc., they're worshiping demons. And it led them to these gross sins where they were sacrificing their their babies, their, their young children to these gods, physically, literally killing them and putting them into the fires of Moloch and Chemosh so they, they were burned alive. And that's Psalm 106, 38. And they shed innocent blood, the blood of the sons of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan and the land was polluted with blood. This is the corruption that occurs when a nation that has revelation rejects it and they replace it with the false ideas, the false philosophy, the false uh, religious hopes of, of pagan systems, and it corrupts and perverts the worship. And so this is what happened. This becomes the, the hallmark of... of uh, Israel's worship through most of the Old Testament. What we see here is that biblical worship is corrupted by assimilating the worldview of the culture, the surrounding culture of the peoples and the nations and bringing it into the temple and making it part of their, of their worship. We can't blend a biblical worldview with a non-biblical worldview and have anything other than a product that is corrupt and self-destructive. Self Just think about what we've studied during the period of the judges. We see more and more of a corruption of the priesthood, so we have this Levitical priest. By the time we get down to about Leviticus 18 or 19, we have this corrupt Levitical priest who uh, leads the people into further idolatry, and it turns out he is the grandson of Moses, a descendant of Moses. And so this is, this is horrible. And then we get to the beginning of Samuel, as we studied. You have the corruption of, of Eli, who's this, this fat, slovenly priest, and he may not have been really bad, but he's raised these sons who are terrible, and they're turning the house of God into a a house of prostitution because of the way they're treating the women who are coming to 
uh, coming to the temple. And so, so pagan views that come into the, the, either the Old Testament Israel or into the church always end up in this kind of corruption. And so we saw it in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, the first really overt incident of idolatry entering into Israel occurs with Solomon. I'm not going to get into that. I just want to pick two or three examples. There's a whole lot more we could cover. But we look at the split that occurs after Solomon dies, and the ten, kingdom, the ten tribes in the north are split off from the kingdom, and they are ruled by Jeroboam the first. And then you have the southern kingdom made up of the tribes of uh, uh, Judah and Benjamin, and they're ruled by Rehoboam. Both of these leaders end up taking their, their people into idolatry. In the north, it's more overt. Jeroboam sets up two alternate sanctuaries. The, the only sanctuary authorized for all the kings, all the um, tribes of Israel, is the temple. But he can't have all of his people, if he's going to have any kind of loyalty and develop any kind of patriotism to this new entity called Israel, the northern kingdom, then he can't have his people trotting down to Jerusalem uh, three times a year to worship at the temple. So he sets up his own worship. He sets up a worship site at Bethel in the south, just, just north of the border with Judah, and then in the far north at Dan. And he sets up these, these, and he takes a feather out of Aaron's cap, and he creates two golden calves and says, this is the God who took you out of, out of Egypt. And so they, he reintroduces that golden calf worship. Uh, it will get worse, but that's the sin of Jeroboam. And again and again, the kings in the north are said to have carried on. They were evil, and they carried on the sins of Jeroboam, the sin of, of Nevat. And so we have this corruption that developed, but it got much worse. As you went through two or three different dynasties in the north, it really got bad under King Ahab. And Ahab married uh, Jezebel, who was a daughter of uh, the Syrophoenician king, and, the high, and he's also the high priest of Baal worship. And so when he married her, she came down, and part of her dowry she has... Uh, several hundred priests of Baal and priests of Asherah. And so she's going to come in and she wants to change the whole uh, religious setup in Israel. She makes it illegal to teach about Yahweh and to teach the law. And she, uh, Elijah has to go into hiding and God sends him into hiding, brings the northern kingdom under judgment, and after uh, three years, God calls Elijah out of hiding. We know about the major confrontation with the priests of Baal up on Mount Carmel. But this culminates in God calling one of the most interesting characters and also a king in the north uh, out, and his name is Jehu. And when I read about Jehu, I sort of think a little bit about President Trump. You know, he is just... He, 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 is, he, he is wild, but he's got a mission from God. Uh, he's eventually going to, he will go out of bounds, and he gets judged by God, but he is used by God to destroy the house of Ahab, and he does that. And so Jehu, uh, who's anointed by God, destroys the worship of Baal, and he cleanses the land of the uh, worship of Asherah and Baal. But he doesn't, he doesn't 
depart from the sins of Jeroboam. Then Second Kings 10.31, we read, But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart. I think the key word there is all. He, he picks and chooses. He's anointed by God for a purpose, but he does not depart from the sins of Jeroboam who had made Israel sin. And what now has happened in the northern kingdom? The law of the Lord, the knowledge of the law of the Lord has left. There's corruption in the north because there's no knowledge of the law of the Lord so that the people have become illiterate and ignorant of Torah. They don't know what they are supposed to do. And that always happens when God's people become ignorant of God's revelation, then their worship is going to become corrupted. And so this is what we see in the, in the Old Testament a time and time again. In fact, by the time we get to the last king we're going to look at, uh, Josiah, what happens during his reign is the high priest Hokiah rediscovers Deuteronomy. It's been lost. Nobody knows about it. For probably the whole time of his father, who's the evil king Manasseh, uh, it's been lost for so 40 years. Nobody's heard anything about the true law, and it was as evil as it could possibly be under Manasseh. And it's not until they have the discovery of the law that they have a restoration of worship, which goes back to our basic one of our basic principles, that worship is a response to God's revelation. And when God's revelation is marred, corrupted, and ignored, then that's what happens to uh, to worship, and so we get into this uh, uh, this period that occurs um, uh, in the times of Manasseh. Now, this is it's interesting. We'll talk about Hezekiah in a minute. We'll talk about the good guys and the reforms in just a minute. But you have Hezekiah, and Hezekiah uh, is a co-regent with his with his uh, son Manasseh. Manasseh is just as evil as he can be. I mean, what he did, it just goes beyond description. I mean, they were, they were uh, just had these huge ceremonies where the people were bringing their babies and putting them on these uh, fiery altars to be burned alive. And, and the, the, the sexual perversion that went on and the religious corruption, they, they had the, the, the idols to Baal and Asherah inside the temple. And they're sacrificing to Asherah and, and uh, Baal inside the temple. Now, this happened uh, earlier under Ahaz as well. Uh, and so there's a cleansing uh, that occurs uh, after, uh, after Ahaz. We'll talk about him when we start to the positive side. But uh, when we get to Manasseh, he is, he's evil. He's practicing idolatry, demonism, and, and sorcery. In 2 Kings 21.6, he says, He made his son pass through the fire, practicing soothsaying, used witchcraft, and consulted spiritists and mediums. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house of which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. So just incredible uh, uh, blasphemy and perversion uh, that, that is taking 
that is taking place there. But verse 9 goes on to say, they paid no attention and Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And in verse 11, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, he has acted more wickedly than all the Amorites. He's worse than all the Canaanites. Bundle them all up. Add it all up. Whatever the total is, he is a, a thousand times worse. Trust me, we haven't seen that level of perversion in this country. We're not there yet. Okay, when people say, oh, it's just so terrible. Wait, just wait a while. We've got a long way to go. So uh, Manasseh acted more w- wickedly than all the Amorites who were before him, and he also made Judah sin uh, with his with his idols. So this is just this, this horrible, horrible corruption uh, that, that uh, took place in Israel. And it's all because, number one, they lost the word of God. They turned away from the word of God. They didn't know what the truth was. And so they're not responding to God. They're making it up. They're doing what gave them personal pleasure, what they thought would bring them prosperity and health and uh, all of the things that would go with it. They're seeking happiness uh, apart from God. And so when we lose sight of who God is and don't know who he is because we've turned away from revelation and from the scripture, then the result is going to be the corruption uh, of worship. Now, the positive thing is God is good. God is gracious, and God brings restoration, what I would call true biblical revival, not manipulated revival through the use of of various techniques and and through different um, uh, different methodologies that developed in American revivalism back in the early 19th century. But, but this is a true change that occurs because God has not departed from his people. He doesn't turn his back on them again and again. The picture in the Old Testament, he's calling them to himself. Now, in this next section, I want to talk about how we have this, this first major restoration. It occurs after the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. And so we have Jehu that came along, and Jehu just, uh, under God's order, he destroys the house of Ahab. He kills Ahab, he kills Jezebel, he kills um, their son. And there's this cleansing in, in the northern kingdom. But in the southern kingdom, their evil has also penetrated Judah through their daughter, Athaliah. This is one of the most interesting stories from the Old Testament. Athaliah is the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, and she married Ahaziah, who's a king of Judah. And so she has a a son who's now been killed, and she had many, many grandchildren. Now, Jehu killed Uh, Ahaziah, uh, her son, and so she wants to secure her own power base. So she, in her evil, she's going to kill all of her grandchildren in order to make sure that she is going to be the sole ruler. She's going to be the heiress. And so she sets about having all of her grandchildren killed, but um, she has a 
uh, a niece, Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, who uh, Jehoshaphat hid one of the grandsons, Joash, so that he would not be killed. And he is secreted away and he is hidden for seven years. And Athaliah has this reign of terror in the south, and it's the promotion of all the Baalism and everything else. Everything is as corrupt as it can possibly be. But the high priest Jehoiada knows uh, about uh, Jehoash or Joash, and he is protecting him. And so one day when Joash has reached the age of seven, uh, Jehoiada is going to bring the priests together. They are going to recommit to the Mosaic law, to the covenant with God. They, have, they go through, what do they have to do now in order to serve God? What's the first thing? There's got to be cleansing. So there's cleansing for the priests. Everybody recommits uh, 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 with the oath to the covenant, and they bring Joash out, and they, uh, they put a robe on him in sight of Athaliah. She's at the palace, and they're at the temple, and she can look and see outside the temple what is going on, and she just absolutely goes ballistic. And so as end result is she is killed, and Jehoiada uh, cleanses the temple, tears down the idols of Baal and Asher that have been put up in the temple. That's going to happen again several, several more times. But it cleanses the temple, and then they begin to repair the temple, and they raise money. They set out these big chests so the people who are coming, they're bringing their offerings, they're putting free will offerings into the chest so that they can repair and restore all of the offering. But uh, after Je Jehoiada dies, then Joash fails spiritually, and he has a major spiritual test, and there's going to be an invasion from the north from Haziel of Syria who is going to come down from the north, and he buys him off. But he buys him off by taking God's money out of the treasury of the temple, and he pays off Hazael. And the result is that there's a conspiracy and he's assassinated within a very short time. So failure to restore worship was based on a lack of faith and trust in God. So we see another principle there that biblical worship must be grounded in a biblical faith and trust in God. Now the next example, which happens several years later, several decades later, is under Hezekiah. And this is described in Second Chronicles chapter 29 and, and following. And this takes place, uh, again, after a period of apostasy. The southern kingdom is under threat from the uh, Assyrian armies. And so they are going to restore. They go back to the law. They read the law. And they have to learn how to cleanse the temple. So they're going to restore biblical worship. So what does that mean? Well, first of all, they have to uh, gather together all of, the, all of the priests, and they have to be cleansed, and they have to be sanctified. And then they begin to go through the whole process of cleansing or sanctifying the house of the Lord, the temple. And they do that uh, in eight days, and it takes them the first half, eight days to sanctify themselves and eight days to sanctify the temple. And in Second Chronicles twenty nine twenty one, we read, and they brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, and seven male goats 
for a sin offering for the kingdom, for the sanctuary, and for Judah. Then he commanded the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. So they are uh, fulfilling all of the Levitical offerings in order to uh, cleanse them. And then that is described more in the in the subsequent passages. And after they have done that, then what happens? See, this is what we, we forget this, and we're going to see this here, and we're going to see it again with Josiah. There is a celebration that takes place. That's why a key word to use in describing worship is worship is a celebration. It's a celebration that we're at peace with God. It's a celebration of our salvation. It's a celebration of forgiveness. And in Second Chronicles twenty nine twenty five, we read, And he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with stringed instruments, and with harps according to the commandment of David, of Gad, the king, Seir, and of Nathan, the prophet, for this was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. So it goes back to what David had done in organizing and developing the choirs and the Levitical priests, and Hezekiah reinstates all of that. So now you have all of this grandeur that's occurred that hasn't really been there since, since the time of, of, uh, of Solomon. And remember, this isn't something that David just generated or Solomon came up with. God revealed to David what the temple would be like, and all of this worship, all of this was revealed to to him. So it's not something that David or Solomon just generating on their own. It is God's revelation of what his worship would uh, would be like. And so we're told that the... Uh, there's this great celebration that occurs. Uh, there's singing. There's uh, all this joyful celebration as they offer the uh, burnt offerings and the sin offerings. And in Second Chronicles 29:33, we read they conse- the consecrated things were 600 bulls and 3,000 sheep. But then something really interesting happens, and that is that they are going to reinstate Passover. And Passover has not been observed in any number of years, but they have to get prepared for it, and they're going to end up being a month late, so they have to celebrate it in the second month instead of the first month because it just took too long uh, for them to uh, cleanse everything and to get everything ready. And we read in Second Chronicles 30. Verse 24, for Hezekiah, king of Judah, gave to the assembly a thousand bulls and seven thousand sheep, and the leaders gave to the assembly a thousand bulls and ten thousand sheep, and a great number of priests sanctified themselves. The whole assembly of Judah rejoiced. Also the priests and the Levites, all the assembly that came from Israel, the sojourners who came from the land of Israel, and those who dwelt in Judah. So there was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this uh, in Jerusalem. And so they celebrate uh, Passover for 14 days, according to Second Chronicles 30, 22 and 23, they have the Passover feast for seven days, but they added another seven days. So it goes for 14 days. And no Passover had been seen like that since David, but that's not the greatest Passover. The greatest Passover is going to come when we get into, uh, when we get into uh, the, the episode with Josiah and his, his restoration. 
Now, let me see. I didn't get, I didn't have this last verse in there. One of the interesting things is the response of worship in, of Judah. In Second Chronicles 31, 1, we read, now when all this was finished, okay, they've, they've restored the temple, they've cleansed the temple, they've had Passover. What do you think they did then? Now, when all this was finished, all Israel who were present, this is the response of worship. It means that life is going to change. Okay, it's not just something we do and then we 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 uh, compartmentalize that off. Second uh, Chronicles thirty-one one. They left Jerusalem and went through all the cities of Judah and broke the sacred pillars in pieces. They cut down the wooden images and threw down the high places and the altars from all Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh until they had utterly destroyed them all. Then all the children of Israel returned to their own cities, every man to his possession. See, it changes the social structure. It ch- it's going to change the politics. It's going to say, not for long, but it's going to change it uh, for a while. And then after Hezekiah, we go through all the evil of Manasseh. See, it didn't last long. And then finally Manasseh dies, and uh, his son Josiah becomes uh, the king. And he's eight years old when he becomes the king, and he's under the influence of Hilkiah, the high priest. And in Second Chronicles 34, 2, we read, And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. And then in verse 19, we uh, read, let me see here, I've got some of this up here. Uh, Now when they brought the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord. See, it's been hidden. Nobody knows what's in Deuteronomy. And they're going to get it out and they're going to read it. And Hilkiah answered and said to um, Shaphan the scribe, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. So he carried the book to the king bringing the king word, saying, all that was committed to your servants, they're doing. And then they take all of this, and then they read it before the king in verse 18, and thus it happened. When the king heard the words of the law, he said, well, isn't that interesting? That's not what happens. He heard the words of the law, and he tore his clothes. This is a sign of grief, of extreme grief. I mean, he is taking this seriously. He realizes how... Israel has failed God completely. And so he is going to uh, restore the temple, and there's going to be, like with Hezekiah, there's going to be a cleansing of the temple, and he orders the Passover uh, to be kept. And he provided 30,000 animals from the flock, 3,000 cattle, 2,600 sheep and 300 cattle, and their brethren gave, uh, or his leaders gave 2,600 sheep and 300 cattle, and their brethren gave 5,000 sheep and 500 ca- uh, cattle. And according to Second uh, Chronicles 35:18, there had been no Passover kept in Israel like that since the days of Samuel the prophet. Now, the date here is about somewhere around 610, something like that. And so it's been since the time of Samuel. So it's been for over 400 years, over four centuries since they had had a Passover uh, this extent. And so uh, this is, then what happens after Josiah dies? He's defeated not long after this. He gets, he's arrogant, and uh, Pharaoh Necho is coming up, and he's going to do battle with a, 
with Nebuchadnezzar, with the Babylonians up at a place called Carchemish. And Josiah has no reason to get involved, but he decides he wants to get involved uh, outside the will of God to protect the nation, and he's going to be killed at that battle. And that is going to uh, leave open the throne to the next uh, three kings that are that are evil, and it culminates in the defeat of Israel and the destruction of Israel by Nebuchadnezzar in 586. And that punishment is for the evil of Manasseh. So corrupt worship leads to the destruction of a nation because it shifts focus from being all about God to all about all about me. As we've seen in this, we'll have to come back next time to finish it up. What happens after they come back from the uh, from the exile is that God prohibits all competition. He does not want us worshiping anything else or anyone else to put anything else in his place in our lives. He wants to be front and center because then he will take care of all of the other details. This is what Jesus says in Matthew six thirty three, when he says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. If you put God first, God's going to take care of all of the other, other details. But we can't corrupt worship with human viewpoint pagan ideas. Any attempt at assimilation always leads to a corruption of the worship of God. When we start trying to make worship acceptable to the non-Christian culture, then it destroys Christianity. And this is exactly what's happened in the whole church growth movement. The whole idea was to make the seeker acceptable. You've heard the term seeker-friendly churches. And this is dominating evangelicalism, and it produces these big churches that are filled with people who are not saved, and their their values have shaped the music, it shaped uh, the teaching, it shaped uh, everything, the whole culture, the whole culture of the church. The result is that there is a loss of the knowledge of the Word of God. One of the foremost churches that that was at the forefront of the church growth movement was a church called Willow Creek Church in. Uh, Chicago. Now, I've understood that recently there's been some scandals that have gone there, and the highballs are no longer associated with it. Things have changed, probably not in terms of the basic philosophy. But this church was the lar- before Joel Osteen came along, was the largest church in America. It was the model church. I remember Bill Hybels being invited several times to come down and speak to different groups at Dallas Seminary when I was there in the 1980s, and. And, and they just couldn't do anything wrong. There was a guy who was working on his Ph.D. in sociology at Northwestern University in the, in the late 80s, early 90s. And he, I think his name was Pritchett or Pritchard or something like that, and he wrote his doctoral dissertation just from a sociological perspective on the sociological dynamics of what was going on in this church because it was a growth phenomena. How did they do this? So let's map this out so everybody else can follow the pattern. One of the things he discovered in the course of his investigation was that the church had over 300 full-time pastors. Among those 300 pastors, there was not one man with any kind of formal theological training. Not one. There was not one man on staff who had a system who owned a systematic theology book, not one. 
It is a biblically and theologically ignorant culture. And I will tell you that even though you have men in this city who are pastoring some of these very large churches, they are biblical, biblically and theologically ignorant because they, they've gone to seminaries that don't provide a curriculum that it takes you through all the books of the Bible like Dallas Seminary used to and like Chafer Seminary does now to take you through all the books of the Bible and through all of the different categories of, of theological education so that at least you have a foundation uh, upon which you can build. When there is a loss of the knowledge of God's word, then the church mirrors and imitates the culture around it, and this is a corruption and a per perversion. What happens is you see, as in the culture, a shift of focus from God to a per individual's personal needs, and that's a big thing is we have to satisfy felt needs. And I heard that so much I was ready to throw up when I was in seminary, and that was a long time ago, uh, that it's all about the, securing the individual's personal success and rather than serving God, their personal happiness rather than serving God. It's about personal entertainment and pleasure rather than submitting to God in obedience. And what we're seeing in the church, and we've seen it all through the church age, again and again, we repeat in different ways the same corruption, the same perversion that occurred uh, in the Old Testament. Now, next time we're going to see what happens when Israel comes back in the land. We're going to see the uh, initial reformation that occurs and then the perversion of legalism, and that will take us then naturally into uh, this thing that explodes when Jesus the Messiah appears, and we'll start getting into the uh, New Testament material uh, next time. Father, thank you for this time we've had to study these things. Help us to stop, to think, to focus, to reflect on our own ideas of worship and how they stack up to what the Bible teaches and what the Bible sets forth. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand all these principles that we as a church and as a congregation as individuals, we can get it right between our ears and we can understand how we are to be thinking and acting in terms of those who worship you day in and day out as we come together as a corporate body to worship you, that you may be glorified. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.